Uh, Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. Um, reading verses 5 to 11. So Romans 6, 5 to 11. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We will have the words up on the screen for you. Romans chapter 6, verses 5 to 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that he would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I remember um, as a teenager, not growing up in a Christian home, um, kind of wrestling with the most important questions of life. Like, why are we even here? What is the purpose of humanity? What happens to us after we die? Uh, is there something spiritual about us? Are we just material creatures? And growing up uh, with you know, a firmly atheistic father, uh, he was very much in the way that when you die, you go six feet deep, you rot, that's it. You come to an end. You have this brief time of existence and then you come to an end and death is it. There is nothing else. And I remember that didn't sit well with me growing up because I just thought, how did any of this even come into existence? Why is any of this even here? What happens to morality, good and evil, if there is no God? And if we just make everything up, if we make up what's good and we make up what is evil. And this really got to me as a teenager. And I felt like this big elephant in the room was death. People dying, no one ever saw a dead body, and no one ever talked about it. And if you wanted to make someone really, really uncomfortable, bring up that topic and they'll find a really quick way to get out of that conversation. And I found that you know, no one was to talk to me about this stuff. And it was really depressing. I actually found myself as an 18, 19 year old uh, young man wrestling with these things and falling into a deep depression and finding things to distract myself. And it wasn't until I fished out this old Good News Bible at the bottom of a box of books and opened it up to one of the Gospels and started reading Jesus that I realized that there is a completely different way to view the world, a completely better way to view the world. And when I started to read Jesus, I started to think, this guy knows what he's talking about. And he makes big claims about himself. It's not like, it's not, he's, he doesn't just, I thought he was like this kind of hippie guy with long hair and, you know, a beard, and he was kind of preached love and peace and stuff. And then when I read it, was reading it, I'm like, he's very, very different to what I thought. And the claims he makes are amazing. <clears throat> Follow me. No one else can come to the Father except through me. If any other human being made those claims, you would think he's the most arrogant person who ever lived. And then we come and we read Jesus and we think, yeah, that's fine. Why do we think it's fine? Why do we feel like that's fine? That is a big claim for Jesus to say, if you, I'm the only means of salvation, follow me. The only way that he could make that claim and still be humble, like we feel he is, is if he is God and if he's telling us the truth. And it, it got me into C.S. Lewis. I was uh, reading online and stuff and um, I started reading Mere Christianity and he makes this really good point that 
Jesus can only be one of three things. He's either a liar, he's like a deceitful, wicked liar who has fooled billions of people across a long period of time to believe in him when all he did was lie about himself. And he would be one of the worst people to ever live if that was true. Number two, he's a lunatic on the same level as a guy, C.S. Lewis says, who thinks he's a boiled egg. He thought all these things about himself. He wasn't lying, but he was just insane. And he tricked people, not realizing he was tricking people. And when I read Jesus, I do not think the man is a liar. When I read Jesus, I do not think the man is insane. And that leads us one other option. He is who he says he is. Jesus, uh, and C.S. Lewis says, then he is Lord. And if he is Lord, we must bow at his feet and accept him as such. C.S. Lewis says, Christianity cannot be moderately important. It's not moderately important. It's either the most important thing ever or the least important thing. It's not in the middle. Jesus kind of forces us to make a decision. He doesn't come along and say, here's some good stuff, follow it if you want, or you don't. He says, no, you must follow it. He forces you to make a decision. It's quite confronting. For some people, it's quite offensive. And I totally get it. And I was this young 18, 19-year-old boy wrestling with the claims of Jesus and thinking, man, C.S. Lewis is right. I have to make a decision about Jesus. There's no fence sitting with Jesus. He has not left that option available to me. And we come to a passage like Romans 6, and we see that Christ didn't come necessarily to set an example, although he did leave an example for us, but he came for a purpose. He came to rescue us. And many people ask, why the cross? We hear often, Jesus died for you. And we think, great, why? Why does someone need to die for me? You can understand a soldier going and dying for you because there's an external threat, an enemy army coming towards you. You send your soldiers out, they die for you, and you think a heroic sacrifice, they have protected us. You can understand why a soldier dies for you, but why does Jesus die for us? There's no enemy army coming after us. What's the problem? What's happened? And here in Romans 6, we see this vivid illustration of a prison. That humanity is enslaved and we are in prison and we need liberation. And so we come to the person of Jesus Christ who died by being crucified. He did not have a fair trial. It was a kangaroo court. Everything was stacked against him. They were going to kill him no matter what. They even had an option to choose between Jesus and some hardened criminal who had killed people. And guess who they chose? they much rather Jesus died than this criminal died. And they let this guy named Barabbas free. He was completely innocent. And Jesus was treated as the scum of society. And we can see he was because he was crucified next to two robbers. He was crucified like a common criminal. The man Jesus, the biggest, most influential man that has ever lived, crucified next to two robbers. And it's fascinating that Jesus, being killed in the most brutal of fashions, we call this day Good Friday. It's horrible. Have you guys ever seen uh, The Passion of the Christ? Classic Mel Gibson movie. He, uh, he admitted that he had to tone down the violence in it. It's amazing when you watch that movie and you see the violence and the horrific things that Jesus went through, but the reality of it would have been much worse. They had to tone down the violence. It's amazing. And the picture that the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 paints is imprisonment. Humanity's trapped. We're enslaved by an oppressive force, which he calls 
sin. If you've been around churches, you know that word, sin. You've heard that word before. But it's amazing that many people who've been around church don't actually know what that word means. Most people think it means simply doing a bad thing, making a mistake, or even just immorality, doing, doing the wrong stuff. But the term's actually an archery term. You would go to like some barracks or something back, especially um, during the Roman times, and there was a bunch of soldiers and they pulled out their bows and they were doing target practice. If one of them missed the target, guess what they would call that? Sin. sin. Yeah, it was sin. So what's going on here? Well, the term means missing the target. It means to miss the target. So Paul says here that you're enslaved to missing the target. You're enslaved to falling short. Sin is this insidious evilness within us that causes us always to fall short of where we need to be. Always to fall short of what God requires of us. No matter how advanced or how moral or civilized we become as a society, we look around and we see we fall short. We don't hit that mark. And everyone, you know, proclaims utopia. Let's get utopia. Let's get peace on earth. Let's get all these different things. And every time we seem to make these advances, we always seem to fall short. And the message of Easter is this. God acted. He saw us imprisoned in these dark chains, in these cells, trapped to always falling short, trapped to always failing to come up to what God requires of us. He saw us in our plight. He saw us in our sin and misery. And he didn't stay in heaven. He came down. He waded into the filth, into the sin, and into the muck of this world and took it upon himself. That's amazing when you consider the glories he would have had in heaven, and yet he waded in. There's this great illustration of this church that was in Sydney where they had a Good Friday service. No, sorry, a Christmas service. And they'd gotten all the rubbish in the area because it was bin day, and they just dumped all the rubbish in the middle of the church. And they told everyone when they came in, we need you to walk through all this rubbish. Everyone was like, what is going on? And it was this illustration to talk about Jesus being incarnated into flesh, coming and becoming a man. And it was you were supposed to walk through the filth as a clean person to remind yourself that Jesus walked into our filth. He walked into our mess. He walked into our situation. It's quite, quite a powerful illustration. And Jesus came and he spoke truth in a world that was messy. He spoke truth in a world that was broken. And do you think that world wanted to hear the truth? Not really. I mean, how do you know that? Well, they killed him. A man literally came and embodied truth and we killed him. And we judge people who do that, but we should be so judgmental. Because we feel like we don't like sin and we feel like we don't like these chains. But it's very hard to liberate people who love their chains. If you know anything about the Exodus story, we just had a Passover dinner last night and we were uh, remembering Egypt. Um, the plagues that came upon Egypt and the Israelites coming free and they were wandering in the desert but it was they took Israel out of Egypt but it was really hard to get Egypt out of the Israelites they were always complaining and it was hard to liberate a people who loved their chains it's very hard and Romans envisions humanity sitting in a jail cell lost, alone and enslaved awaiting death and falling under the judgment of God which will result in eternal punishment within hell. Brutal stuff. Hard stuff. Offensive stuff. If this hurts your heart right now, if you're feeling a bit offended, good stuff. That's the way you're supposed to feel. But for some, we love that self. And we don't want to be liberated. And this is where the good and good Friday comes in. 
Paul says here that the key to being free is to be united to the only true free man that ever lived. The only man who wasn't enslaved to sin, the only man who didn't come up short, but shot his bow and he hit that bullseye. And he hit the mark every time he lived a perfect life. He always, always hit the mark and he was killed in a travesty of justice. He was sent to death in a rigged trial and he allowed it. He even talks to Pilate and he says, I at my command have legions of angels I could send down any moment to set me free. You have no power over me. I have given myself over to this. I am taking this on board. And he endured all this hardship and he gave up his life to actually accomplish something enormous in us. Freedom. Freedom. If we are united to Christ, the passage says in verse 7, we are set free from sin. How does that happen? How does one become free from sin? Jesus swallowed up our sin on the cross. He didn't just die to give us an example. He didn't just die so that he could show what it means to suffer injustice. He died to swallow up your sin and take it in on himself. He took the penalty as if all the sin you have done, the evil things, the falling short that you have done your whole life was placed on him and he was punished as if he was you. He was sacrificed so that any who would believe and be united to him would go free. And if you believe in Jesus here this morning, you are united to him. The passage here pictures being united to Jesus as dying. It's a bit bizarre. If you want to escape death, you need to die. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Death didn't have the final say. Jesus rose again on that third day. He spent that Sabbath in the tomb. He was dead. He was dead as dead could be. He was resting in the tomb. But death no longer has dominion over Jesus. Death no longer has control over him. He rose again from the dead. And for those who trust in his name, death no longer has dominion and all control over you. He died to sin. He died as if he swallowed up all the sins of all those who will believe in him and he took them to the grave and there they are buried and there they will stay. Your sin will never come back to haunt you, even in the midst of your sin, even in the midst of struggling with sin. That sin has been taken, past, present, future, brought down and is six feet deep under the ground. Or if you want to use the illustration here, it's in the tomb. The rock is in front of it. It will never come back. He completely sets us free. If you're in him, to be united with Jesus is to be dead to sin. Your sin has been taken away and nailed to the cross. If you feel lost and alone in the cell of your own sin, why don't you check the door? Give it a push. See if it opens. If you're worried about those chains on your wrist, have a look at them. Are they broken? Have they been broken? Do you still feel their weight or has the weight been made light? In Christ, they are cut loose. That jail cell is open. Why don't you walk out into life? Why don't you come out into the brilliant world that is outside those four walls of that tiny prison of sin? In Christ, they're cut loose. They're completely broken so that you can be raised again. 
your sin will not have the last say. When you stand before God and give an account, your sin will not be there. You will not have to bear its weight before God as God questions you and asks for an account of your sin. It will not be there. It has been swallowed up 2,000 years ago on the cross. Death will not have the last say. Just as Christ died and rose again from the dead, we hope that by dying in Christ, dying united in Christ, though you may one day end up buried, you may one day end up in the ground or cremated or wherever you're going to die, it does not have the last say. It is not the end. You will not rot in the ground if you believe in Jesus, but you will be raised again from the dead. The assurance that we have that we will live again is as true and as safe and as secure as the reality that Jesus rose again from the dead. And our hope is in Jesus, not in us. We can't resurrect ourselves, but Jesus will resurrect us. And so the last say is this, the resurrection of Jesus. Your love for yourself will not have the last say. Sin will not have the last say. The resurrection of Jesus will. And at this point in the story of Easter, as we're here on the Friday, Jesus' body has been taken down from the cross, wrapped up in linen, placed into the tomb, but his body will not stay there for long. That tomb is bursting with expectation because Jesus will rise again. And just as Jesus lay dead in that tomb, there is our old self. Lying with him. How beautiful is that? Our old self is gone. And man, that guy keeps shadowing me. It's like a, every time I'm like, oh, he's back again. But I've got to realize he's dead. He has no power. He has no control. Through the work of Jesus on the cross, we are free, not because of anything we did, but because of a love of a Savior. He is a sheer work of grace. We sung in that first song, Grace Alone. If you don't know what grace means, grace means undeserved merit. It means favor given to you, even though you don't deserve it. Even though you didn't earn it. Even though it didn't come to you because you were a good person, you did everything, you went to church, you read your Bible, you prayed every day. It came to you despite the fact that you're lacking. That's what grace is. It's the love of a Savior. This new life that Jesus won for us, we can now live to God free from shackles, free from that self, free from meaninglessness and sorrow. And the greatest thing that ever happened to me when I was 19 years old was I put my faith in Jesus and I never again worried about meaninglessness. I never again worried about death and I never again worried that my life would have no purpose because in Jesus I was made new. And if you believe in Jesus this morning, you have been made new. And if you are unsure whether you believe, Maybe today is the day that you put your trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in you is freedom. In you is hope and a new life. And Lord, for us that have been saved and resurrected by your Holy Spirit and have experienced your Spirit, it is an amazing thing. And Father, a million times over, I would have chosen to believe in you again and again and again and again. Because life in you is so much better than life outside. And Lord, even though we go through sufferings and trials and tribulations, we know that our life is not meaningless. We know even our suffering is not meaningless. But we trust in the love of a Savior in your Son, Jesus Christ, who has set us free by grace and grace alone. And it's in his mighty name we pray.